Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. My guest today is Leonora Neville, who has written Heroes and Romans in 12th Century Byzantium, which I highly recommend reading, about Nikiforos Briennus, the husband, fam- famous husband of Anna from Nena. Um, what is it about this era that kind of fascinated you, that made you study, really study this 12th century Byzantium? I discovered Byzantium when I was in my first year of college, and I was studying both a lot about a constructed history of Western civilization and Roman history. And I was fascinated to learn that the Eastern half of the Roman empire didn't fall when it was supposed to, in order yeah. to make the narrative of Western Civ uh, be a coherent story. That's kind uh, of the biggest misconception about history, isn't it? That with Rome fell in the 476. Exactly. Right. So, and I had some of my teachers going with the story that Rome fell in the fourth century in the course of Western civilization was that it was cast off from its yeah. ancient roots at that point. And then I learned that that just wasn't true and that the Eastern Roman Empire remained Aristotle reading Homer quoting classical civilization in some ways and Christian clear through the Middle Ages. And then it was actually conquered by Western European crusaders in the 13th century. Um, so that disjuncture between the standard narrative that's so deeply embedded in our culture and what seemed to be this alternative reality was so striking that I started reading about Eastern Roman history um, pretty avidly when I was quite young, and I've been doing it ever since. Uh, what I love about 12th century history is that it's one of those eras in which they are engaging in very interesting ways with that classical heritage. It's kind so, of an era that's unavoidable, that everyone knows about the crusade and everyone knows, knows yeah. about 12th century. It's kind of unavoidable, basically. Right. Yeah. So it's something that's there are very interesting um, cultural things happening in Western Europe as well. And the crusades are perennial interest for a lot of people. Um, so, so that attracted me to the topic as well, certainly. Um, and then I started, uh, I spent, my first book was actually on um, taxation and mm. looking for the great Byzantine bureaucracy and I couldn't find it. I'm doing social history in the provinces and the sources were very small and difficult to work with. And um, I had a lot of fun writing the book, but when I was done with that one, I wanted to study a story about people doing deeds in chronological order. Um, yeah. So I picked the, the history of Nikiforos of Rienios as something to study, um, just because I wanted a bit of a change. Um, and it was so satisfying. It's a beautiful little history. It's not all that long. Um, and it's a very personal account of um, a disastrous decade of history. So it covers the 1070s. And it was written in probably the 1120s or 1130s, so it's not entirely clear when it was composed. And 
it's um, uh, Nikiforos Vorenios talking about a period of intense civil war in which the Eastern Roman Empire is really struggling through a lot of very difficult external problems in that they're losing Southern Italy to the advances of the Normans. Uh, and they're also losing a lot of territory in the East to the Seljuk Turks. So yeah. it's militarily a really disastrous decade. Um, and it made a whole lot worse by the fact that they were constantly fighting each other in civil wars. Mm. So it's a the period- Romans loved the civil wars, didn't they? Yeah, the, excuse me? The, the Romans loved their civil wars, didn't they? <laughs> well, the Romans managed just to stave off civil war quite a lot of the time. That's why the empire lasted so long. What are we going to do now? Oh, I guess we're going to have another civil war. That's fun. Yes, yes, more civil wars. At this point, there was uh, lots of different families were vying for control and power and being very destructive and distracting from the major fights they needed to have against the external enemies. Um, and then Nikiforos never finished his history, so it breaks off just before uh, the period in which Alexius Komnenos won the civil wars by defeating his rivals and then knitting the polity back together in a very stable way. So he rules, Alexius rules from um, uh, 1081 to 1118, and he manages to take control largely because he defeats the enemies that he, he that are obdurate um, and knits everyone together in marriage alliances mm. between he and his mother work so that by the time Nikiforos is writing, all the formal rivals are all married and they've all got mm. grandchildren. So basically Nikiforos's history is the story of how grandpa captured and blinded your other grandpa, mm. right? Because everybody at the court, but this yeah. family unit, right? They all had relatives who were on different parts of this disastrous civil war period, um, but they were all had intermarried and they were their family. So mm. when I say it's an intimate history, it's a history of the audience of which is the grandchildren and the cousins and the nieces and nephews of the people who are fighting so bitterly decades in the past. Yeah. So, as I see, it's got some big themes of civil war is bad. Mm. Unity is good. And boy, our family is kind of messy. Let's think through that. Yeah. Right. So it sets up um, the people who are listening, the audience and who I think are just the, the yeah. court Constantinople, the relatives, um, for conversations about history, right? Yeah. How are we going to think through this? How are we going to reconcile ourselves to what's going on? Yeah. Now, yeah. Yeah. Now, Anatomiana is obviously way more, most, most people have read somewhat Byzantine, probably heard Anatomiana, but her, how come she is more, so much more famous than her husband? And it's kind of fascinating to me because, you know, this era is a man's world and she yeah. to managed to become more famous than her husband, who, and who you know wrote history as well. So how how come she became more famous? Was it because she was kind of the first Western female historian? Is that what was so intriguing no. about it? No, not at all. It's because her history is much longer. It's more substantive. It's much better, um, and. You, in variety of the topics that it covers. So the Alexiad, her history was, has been famous for ages because it's the Eastern account of the first crusade. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the Eastern account of the rise of the Turks um, and a lot of very significant military events. Yeah. 
So her reputation rests on the strength and detail of her military narrative um, and her interpretation of the First Crusade. Her history is much longer than her husband's Mm -hmm. and far more detailed. And she goes back and retells the stories that he tells about the rise of Alexius in the beginning of her history. Mm-hmm. She has a different take on Alexius and a different interpretation. Yeah, yeah, because she like yeah. pray, obviously for because she is his daughter, she wants to put him on a good light. She praises him, whereas Nicephor, <laughs> as you men talked about in your book, she, he is rather critical. Yeah, of Alexius. Yeah, I think um, in terms of understanding the Alexiad, it helps to read the two documents, the two histories together, because I think. She comes, as you say, she's his daughter. She wants to make him look good. Everyone thinks that she's doing this to praise Alexius because she's sycophantic. Um, She's also doing a direct corrective to the criticism in her husband's history, right? Right. So she takes every point at which Nikki Forrest insinuates that Alexius was dishonorable. And she makes that point that she praises him on. Um, and if you only read the Alexiad without reading Nikiforos, um, she can seem odd, like why is she stressing so much that this is her dad who did this? Mm-hmm. Um, a great example is in the story of the um, the big final battle between Nikiforos's grandfather, who's also named Nikiforos mm-hmm. Granius, um, the elder, uh, and Alexius. In Nikiforos's story, Alexius just kind of um, doesn't do much and his Turkish mercenaries make all the choices yeah. and do all the fighting and win the battle for him. Um, and he just sets up a bunch of tricks and, and winds up the victor. Um, and then in Anna's account, she retells it at a lot of places. She says, my father did this, my father, mm. my father, my father. And it's early on in the Alexiad. And when you read that story, what the impression modern readers get is why is she constantly calling him my father, yeah. right? And they're, they're missing the fact that she's inserting all of those places where Nikiforos' story, it's mm. the Turkish mercenaries did this, the Turkish yeah. mercenaries did this. Um, so that's that's one example of a change. Um, it, it's fascinating, though, that you don't choose to write about him in third person, whereas, you know, a lot of, like Julius Caesar, for example, write about himself in third person. Yeah, but she doesn't. She doesn't write Alexis. She writes my father, like you said. Yeah, yeah. She is emphasizing that it's a, it's a relationship as well. Absolutely, you know. But that that's one of several places where she's correcting Nikki Forrest's text to make it make her dad look look better yeah. um, and hold up his history. I think when you think about um, why did he not get more famous, mm-hmm. everything in Nikki Forrest's history is also in others. So it's yeah. not an independent source yeah Um, we also only had we have no manuscript of it at all anymore it's only known from one transcription of a manuscript that was lost in france in the late 17th or 18th centuries right um so and it seems that manuscript the lost one had a complete excellent copy of the alexiad and nikiforos's history Uh, The people who were working on it in the 1630s and 1640s believed that it was, in fact, Anna's autograph. Like, Mm. that was the book into which she wrote the Alexiad, and it was after uh, her husband's history. Mm. Uh, So it seems as if that text always had a very small circulation. Mm. Um, So we don't, which is why when I call it an intimate family history, it's a history of family for family. 
um, designed to be read in that pretty small circle. Mm. Uh, and I don't think very many people either in the Middle Ages or now have read it. Um, mm. There are a bunch of people, there are several English translations that are sort of in preparation. Yeah. And I think once they get published, it'll be a little bit more widely read. It's available in French, so it's not as if it's that obscure. Um, Unfortunately, I don't speak French, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't help everybody. But um, um, at least it's in a modern, a modern language, yeah. unlike some Byzantine texts. Um, so those are some reasons why it's just never as famous um, in terms of the, the writing, it's much simpler. It's classical Greek style, mm-hmm. but it's sort of patterned on Xenophon or, or Plutarch. It's fairly simple, straightforward prose, whereas Anna draws on a lot of Homer and Aeschylus and um, uh, ancient Greek, um, the, the tragic epic um, mm-hmm style writing and the the prose is just much more uh complex yeah. and formal so the writing is is yeah. really different but um also the scale is really different Nikiforos's history is like maybe 80 to 100 pages whereas hers is just much much larger yeah and you, and you touch upon this as well that that you for and we talked about this i say it's critical against Alexis, could this be because, you know, you say that he's in the book that he's passed away by the time he writes his later books in, in his history, but they also touch that he is critical because, you know, his father had led a failed rebellion mm-hmm. against the emperor at the time. Do forgive me, I forget what his name was because of probably yeah. so many of them at the time. But, but is this why that he is he critical because his father that refers the elder that of failed rebellion? It could be. I mean, um, yeah. yes, his, it's either his father or his grandfather was Nicky Fortas, the elder. Uh, I think it's his grandfather. That's a side point. Um, he definitely knows, had Nicky Fortas, the elder, won that fight, um, then Nicky Fortas, the author, would be emperor, right? Mm. Um, and I think it's, that would be a, something of a thing you have to try to work through as living yeah. your life that it nearly was me on the throne. Um, I think the case he makes for why Nikiforos the Elder would have been a much better emperor than Alexius is pretty mm. strong. And the criticism of Alexius changes over the course of the, of the Nikiforos' history is divided into four books. And in the first four book, first two, um, Alexius seems... Um, is described in very overblown heroic terms. So it's very hyperbolic praise. Like he's so awesome. He's so fabulous, but he's shown actually messing up and getting people killed and falling into problems. And I mean, no, that, not a bloody rebellion and the, and the, you know, his entry to the tar into, we know how bloody that, that was when he entered and became emperor. Which yeah, Anna doesn't really touch too much much upon because that would put him in a bad light, wouldn't it? No, she says a lot about. We know that his coup was bloody and awful mm. only because of the Alexiad. Mm. Right? That's a um, people miss all the places where she is, in fact, giving us lots of negative information about Alexius. She's the one who reveals that his coup was really bloody. The coup story where Alexius takes power is not narrated in Nikiforos' mm. history because he didn't mm. finish it. Um, and it's, he maybe didn't finish it because he didn't want to get into that difficult part of the story. Um, but the the bloody sack of the city is known largely in the details from the Alexiad. Yeah. He was, you know, honest about that problem. Um, Nikki Forrest is, is 
paving the way to lead up for it. So the first two books, he makes Alexis look a little bit ridiculous and a little Mm -hmm. bit overblown. And then as it goes on, he also makes him seem um, calculated and callous so that it, um, when Alexius is serving as an advisor to one of the emperors who's about to get deposed, he's saying, well, the easy way for you to stay in power is just go murder all the protesters outside um, and give advice that's really quite chilling and saying, go murder people. Um, so that's a different, um, there's a different feeling to that criticism of Alexius. Consistent throughout all four books is that Alexius is portrayed as winning only through deception. Um, And there's a ton of fighting in this book. Um, And there are patterns that you can see if you analyze like how the different modes and all the Turks and Alexius fight deceptively and all Mm -hmm. the Romans fight in a straightforward eye to eye, man to man style. And when you fight straight up eye to eye, man to man, you lose. Right. Mm -hmm. So all the honorable, good, straightforward fighting leads to defeat and all the deceptive, dishonorable, sneaky Mm -hmm. fighting leads to victory. Right. And so that's a consistent pattern that Nikifor sets up, which aligns Alexius with the Turks, who are, of course, enemies. Right. So we did talk about this actually in way back when I made with the, you know, many episodes about Alexius Comnellus in Mm -hmm. March, how we, that it wasn't necessarily that great general. Yeah. He did lose a lot of battles as well. Yeah. 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 He, he lost a lot of them. Uh, again, which we know largely from the Alexiad, right? Yeah. So when, when Anna retells these stories, she's at pains to portray as good generalship fighting mm-hmm. with deception, right? Yeah. Whereas Nick Boris is pretty clearly saying that good, proper, honorable generalship is fighting straightforward. Right. And Anna says, well, actually, victory by any means is victory. Right. And she Mm. makes the case for fighting with deception um, as a way of countering her husband's history of Alexius. But she also lets us know all the big battles that he lost. Um, And so her history is not really, I think, particularly biased at all. Mm. It's got rhetoric that presents herself as very loyal to her dad, which I think was essential for her to be seen as a responsible, reasonable author yeah. as a woman. She had to be loyal to her dad. Um, but she shows us all his dirty underwear um, in terms mm. of the problems that he had in his, his role. Um, so, you know, Nikki Forrest's criticism, it does ratchet up over the course of his book. And it makes it difficult to know when we should put the time of his composition, mm. right? Like, did he write it when Alexius was still alive? Did he write it after he died? Yeah. Uh, he left it unfinished when he died, which was probably in like 1136. That seems to be the case about a lot of historians in that time, that they never finished their work. Like Tuscany right. said, that, yeah. Hey, a lot of historians now never finish their books. Yeah, there's a lot of unfinished books that lie on desks, you know. Um, so that doesn't really tell us anything that he didn't finish mm. it when he died. Um, you know, it's it's possible that he started writing it when when Alexis was still alive, and mm. then it got the more critical parts came after he died. Um, I think that um, his brother-in-law Ioannis, uh, who succeeded Alexius, might have been perfectly happy to have someone be mm. critical of his dad, 
right? You're taking it up the job after 40 years of somebody else and you're trying to create your own space. And your own no age. pressure at all there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, um, I think he'd be, be, there's no reason that we think that John would be mad that Nikki yeah. Forrest is criticizing his dead father, right? Mm. Um, and I don't see any particular reason to think that Nikki Forrest and Ioannis... It didn't seem to be that, and we talked about this in the Anatomian episode as well, that we did a while back, about yeah. uh, he, did, he didn't seem to be that fan of his father since he's just, according to the Alexia, anyhow, that he just rushes basically to get to, to the throne. Yeah. So it doesn't right. seem like to be that great father some right. relationship like that's why I feel like he can criticize yeah. Alexia's kind of exactly yeah also it, we know from the Alexiad that in Alexius's last years he would give general jobs you know jobs to lead the army when he could no longer do it to yeah. um, people other than John right you're honest yes. he didn't give it to him mm-hmm. um, didn't trust either him or Nikki Forrest with an army um, so there, it's not as if Alexis did much to put Ioannis in power or give him power and control. Um, so I could see there's there's reason for tension and worry there. Um, what he also discussed is that, the, of course, Nick Forrest tried to have a coup d'etat in, or according to some historians, I, don't, I, did, I think there's been a debate whether it happened or not, that he did try, but how did he feel about his so-called fail to the tie if it ha- if it happened or if it didn't happen I, because I think I, it seemed to be like a little debate there if, if whether it yeah, happened I don't or not think it happened i don't think there was anything um he sets up nikiforos in his history makes a case that he himself probably would have been a really good emperor because mm. he makes the case that his grandfather would have been a great emperor mm. And he makes the case that Alexius wasn't really good. Mm. He also makes that case, don't forget, that civil war is awful, right? So he's making a strong case that you need to have unity and just deal with an emperor whether you like him or not so you don't fight. So I see that as both an apology for why he maybe didn't go through with trying to Mm. take power and why he supported Ioannis, even Mm. though he thought that he would make a better emperor himself. Um, I think that there's... Um, some other historians say that Nikiforos was given authority mm. by Alexius's wife when Alexius was really sick, yeah. uh, some power. Yeah. So he might have had some power then, which would make a lot of sense if Alexius was worried about his son, right? Yeah. So if Alexius worried about his son taking over too soon, right, and is pushing Ioannis away, like, yeah, you're my heir, but stay away from me till I'm actually dead. You know, mm. don't come too close. It would make sense that they would give Nikifora some power. Mm. Um, and then it's a much later story that says that it was Anna who was the driving force trying mm. to get Nikiforos to murder his brother-in-law. Mm. Um, and I see that as, as just uh, a much later misogynist mm. slander against a woman who wrote a history. Um, that's yeah. a much later 12th century story. So my, I'm on the part of the debate that says, this coup never happened. Mm. What happened? There was family tension. They might have had some power. Somebody wanted to put him in a bad light, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. I think um, you mentioned that Anna is so much more famous than Nikki Forrest. Yeah. It was also that was a very transgressive move in her culture for her to write a history. It was very self-aggrandizing. Mm. It was very unfeminine and bucking ideas that people had for how women ought to behave. 
you know, women are not supposed to talk at all. You're supposed to mm. never hear them. They were just reproduce, basically. That's what they were for. Yeah, yeah. You need to, it, their honor remained in not being heard, right? Mm. So there were certainly a lot of people who did not think it was great for her to write a history. Mm. Uh, and so I think it's that strand of this culture um, that led to, along with a lot of rhetorical reasons in the later history, it's Coniati's history, which is um, written uh, at the end of the 12th century. Um, and in the light of his politics, or he's trying to um, exonerate himself from his role in the decline of the empire and do a lot of other things, um, yeah. that he creates this story of, of blaming the rot and the decline of the empire on the house of Komnenos, on Alexius and his family by inverting everybody's gender, having all the men act like Mm. women and all the women act like men. And that's the context for his story Mm. in which Anna is trying to murder her brother and get her husband to do it. Um, And so that's the portrait of Rienios, Mm. who in Koniatis is just a completely flaccid, wimpy man who doesn't have the strength to commit murder. That's a story of the coup, and I just don't see it as making any sense with these characters, given what we know from their own histories. And I think that you know, especially in the early nineteenth, seventeenth to early mid the twentieth century, that you know, because I read the Sweeter's translation of Mm -hmm. Alexia a while ago, and they both Gibbon and Sweeter kind of trying to put analyze. She is resentful that her husband. Yeah. Didn't go through the coup that she has a grudge against her husband. That she thought him weak because of it. That she, she's yeah. a woman. That she's that they kind of try and put her like being. So what? What's up with that? <laughs> that is a really take <laughs> that she's she's resentful and angry. Yeah. The sense that she's. I resentful. think that Gibbon and the Swedes are trying to help push that persona. They, yeah, they, they, they definitely do. They do. They they see that her is angry. Um, at the beginning, at the end of the Alexiad, she cries a lot for her dad, right? Yeah. And her family. She's weeping and wailing. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a stance at which she's portraying herself as a woman in mourning. And I think it's part of the ways that she's rhetorically creating space for herself as a woman to write a history. Yeah. Because Greek women can talk at funerals, mm-hmm. right? So by framing it in a funeral lamentation creates a space for a woman's voice to be heard. Yeah. It's also deeply humbling. When you see the old widow cry, you're supposed to say, oh, there, there, dear, poor you. I feel so sorry for yeah. you. And because you're feeling sorry for her, you're not going to be angry that she's being so arrogant to mm. tell you what you ought to think about history, right? Yeah. But that, so there's a lot of very clear reasons within her culture for why she would portray herself as mourning. But when you get to Edward Gibbon, he doesn't know anything about Byzantine culture. Yeah, he hated the Byzantines. He totally hated Byzantine culture. He sees her weeping and wailing. And then they're saying like, well, this is nuts. She's crying about some guy who died in his 70s, 20, 30 yeah. years. It's not real. She must be angry, right? Didn't he say that the Alexia was like everything wrong with writing history? Oh, yeah. He said it portrays on every page the vanity of a female author. Yeah. Um, yeah, he hated the Alexiad. But if you read Edward Gibbon's account of the Crusades, every point he makes is one that animated the Alexiad. Yeah. So they agree. Hypocritical. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He uses all of her ideas and her perceptions of the West yeah. are the ones that he uses in his interpretation. Yeah. So he's, he's all over the Alexiad. But he has to denigrate it because it's got this female author thing. Mm. Uh, 
So it's because she seems sad. And so she can't be sad. She must be angry. What's she angry about? Oh, she must be angry about the fact that she didn't get power because Mm. she must have been masculine because she wrote a history. Yeah. And there's some 19th century historians who are saying, well, because she wrote a history, it's obvious that she was masculine and wanted power because why would she be interested in politics? Yeah. You know, therefore, I mean, she's a woman. She has nothing to do with politics. Yeah. Woman can't do politics at all. You know. Yes, you see it. Exactly. <laughs> right. It's exactly. She can't be interested in military history. Oh, she must have wanted to be a man. She must have wanted to be emperor. Yeah. Oh, yeah, she's crying. She's angry. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of this. I find this truly tragic thing where she did so much within her rhetoric to seem modest and humble and like a good girl who was loyal and had all these positive things. And that's all been misinterpreted now so that we think that she was arrogant and bloodthirsty and full of herself and it all backfires. Yeah. It's all. um, So that, I mean, that's sort of getting sidetracked from Nikki Flores, but her history, I think has been really misunderstood mm. um, because we don't think through how she was trying to make her gender yeah. uh, palatable as a, as a female historian. Um, and then the upshot for, for Nikki Forrest of that is that he's gone and down in history essentially as, as a wimp um, because as this, you know, unambitious flaccid man, because he didn't murder his brother-in-law, mm. right? And that's when I get with these nice yeah. historians who are sitting around, you know, denigrating him for not committing murder. And you have to wonder, like, really, can you think for a moment? Do you, do you really want to say that, like, murder would have been great? Yeah. <laughs> or are, you, are you actually arguing for fratricide? Um, so, and I think that um, then, but uh, Nikki Forrest's history needs to really speak for itself. You have to read that and see it. As this guy, he never would have killed his brother, yeah. right? He's arguing throughout this that these civil wars are awful for the Roman Empire, mm. right? I mean, it's just this in the episode of, I didn't mention this one, we went with Anthony Caldelli's Louis Germain in April, where last year, last April, where, where he said that he was much more interested in Anna the historian, than what she would have been like as an empress. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, we can know something about Anna Komnia as the historian, and she's a she's interesting as an intellectual. Um, mm. And the story of the the failed coup also means that she's mostly famous for not having been empress, mm. right? Yeah. And her fame comes from this um, failed political moment, rather than the fact that she's one of the greatest you know women intellectuals of the pre-modern mm. world. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, she's much more interesting as a historian. Because you have to remember that this was a totally different time than we live in right now. That this, yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't necessarily that great time to be a woman in <laughs> in, in the Orthodox world. You know, this might be the case even up to Russia in the in the Revolution. Yeah, because you know they they had Orthodoxy and Orthodoxy has weren't necessarily kind oh, yeah. to women. I tried to figure out when I was writing my book on Anna, when, who was the, the, you know, I say that she's the first woman to write a history that's a proper history according to the rules of the genre yeah. uh, in Greek. When was the second, right? And I couldn't find, I mean, my research was not extensive. I couldn't find any evidence of a woman writing a history in Greek before Second World War, yeah. right? And to get to the middle of the 20th century, 
when women are entering yeah. the, the academy. Um, there's no evidence that women wrote history in that culture. That's crazy. That is so yeah. strange. And it's because the, the modesty is the most important mm. virtue for a woman, to be modest and to be yeah. humble. And talking about politics, history judges men's deeds, mm. right? Tells what men did mm. in politics and war and t- basically tells you if those are good or bad, mm. right? Um, and so for Nikki Forrest to come along and tell that here's a story of things men did in battle for you to think about, reflect on who was good, who was bad. Yeah. Right. He's giving judgment and he's laying the table for you to have a fight about it, a mm. conversation about it, right? For a woman to do that puts her above the men as in the position of judge, yeah. right? Um, judge and narrator and interest in politics is just, it's external to the house. Yeah. What a woman was supposed to be interested in is, as you said, having babies um, mm. and weaving and doing textiles. Yeah, right? like, even the exactly. Yeah, just, you know, you're supposed to be spindle and distaff. Mm. Um, so you're not supposed to be interested in politics, which is partially another reason why Anna emphasizes her relationship with her father. A lot of yeah. this, the father, it's my family. Because she's making the case that imperial history is, is her family's concern. Right, she is a woman who only cares about things that happen with her family. Her family just happens to be in charge of ruling the Roman Empire. Right? Yeah, so she, you know, she brings it into into the house and emphasizes her her familial role as one of her justifications for why she gets to talk about politics. Yeah, um, exactly. Very transgressive stuff for her to do that. Mm. Um, but yeah, and, but. So, Nick, you write about politics in the Roman Empire as well, in your Heroes and Romans, yeah. in, the, in the House of Tremendous. So what, what was the politics in the House of Tremendous like? Um, I mean, I think the in the 1060s and 1070s, um, there were one of several different families that was trying to get control mm. so that then they could, you know, first let's get us in power and then we can... can fight against others. Um, Alexius's mother uh, was very astute and she had a whole lot of children. So it talks about successful women in the 11th and 12th century producing a lot of babies. She had a successfully Mm. had a large number of children Mm. who survived to adulthood. And and we talked about this as well. Yeah, and I think it's you. I don't remember where I read it, but it was like, Anna wasn't the only Anna in the family. She's the most famous Anna. Yeah, but there was like two, three other Annas, Anna oh, yeah. in in the in the family as well. Yeah, yeah. So her grandmother Anna. So you name the the children get named after the grandparents, which is mm. why Nikiforos I think is the grandson of Nikiforos the yeah. rebel. Um, and Anna was named after her uh, father's mother Anna de la Simi, who had a, a whole bunch of children and successfully arranged marriages with them into many of the different factions who were fighting. Right. Yeah. So in terms of what is the political stance of the Komnenos family, it's marry everybody. Right. Mm. And so that Alexis and Arini, they had a yeah. whole bunch of children and they continued, let's get them married into all mm. the different factions. So it's consolidation of political power through familial relationship. Yeah. I think how they, they worked on it. Um, and then in terms of the other, the politics of it, they, um, if I were to say real innovations of Alexios, it's that he was willing to make radical changes to the way that the, the mm. physical system of the empire functioned 
for the sake of, of um, mm. reestablishing a, a coinage on a firm basis, yeah. establishing a military system. So he was, in terms of government action, a pretty astonishing person. And I don't, I don't think your listeners really want to get into the weeds about fiscal reform, um, but he mm. was a very effective reformer. Um, and so that uh, enabled him to remain successful. So on the one hand, you have this familial policy of reconciliation. And I can see Nikki Foros's history playing along with that because although he makes it clear, he thinks Alexius is a jerk. Um, he does support this reconciliation of knitting all the families together. Yeah. Right? This is going to be a, a story about how our grandparents fought and why we should continue to support this, this unity of the yeah. Rome. And let's talk about the, and again, I would refer to the made an episode about Anna a few few months ago, but again, we talked a little bit about that in that episode as well. But what was the relationship like between Anna and Nikki Forrest? Because it seemed like he encouraged her to write history and read the history, whereas when she was living on herself, she, until yeah. she was like 14, which was normal marriage age at the time. You know, she had to hide reading the history, but it seemed like they were supportive of each other. Like they were kind of perfect match. In yeah, I, I absolutely agree, and I think that's one of the um, the things that the story about the coup, where she always hated him for not murdering his brother, mm. uh, brother-in-law, um, is is detrimental. It's is ludicrous. They had he had a really good. They must have had a very good supportive marriage because she was able to be a, a writer and an author. Mm. Um, and in her funeral oration, there are stories about how um, she did hide from her parents and, and mm. studied in secret until they finally relented and say, OK, you can study, you know, with with old men who are eunuchs. Right. Um, yeah. Um, but when she and Nikki Foros had their own household, um, she was able to talk with scholars um, extensively and have time to write. And she had, um, I think another thing that enabled her to write was that she had apartments in a monastery um, where she wasn't a monk and she wasn't part of the mm. monastery, but she was- Yeah, and again, that, we talked about that as well. Like I, I always imagined that that would be like a tiny cell water dripping down, but it was like- no, it, it was, not- Yeah, it was like more like a comfortable yeah. living, living room, basically. Yeah. Yeah, like, I think most people imagine like a tiny cell when they hear about oh, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, no, no. <laughs> think silk, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> basically a luxury studio, yeah. studio apartment, basically. Right, right. So yes, she had her, her luxury loft, um, and it, and it was right. It was on the wall in between the the men's monastery and the women's mm. monastery, right? And so she could look into the men's monastery, and I think that's just a way that the guys. She wanted to talk to intellectuals who are men and yeah. scholars, um, you know, when her husband wasn't around, I think, mm. I'm just, but I think she did that at, at the monastery. Yeah. Um, but also Nikki Forrest thought it was fine in his household to have a bunch of, you know, men who were scholars mm. talk to his wife. Um, and they, so I think they got along, you know, mm. quite well. They had a- Didn't she stay in the same place that her mother used to stay? Yes. Yeah, it was that it was her mother's monastery had, yeah. her mom had imperial apartments within the monastery yeah. as well. Um, yeah, so they were, they were both there. We don't know how much time we spent there. We know about the monastery because we mm. have the monastery's foundation documents, yeah. which describe these apartments, which is how we know that it's not a dark, damp cell with dripping water. It's, but, yeah. you know, you know we That's can, kind of what you imagine when you hear a monastery oh, yeah. cell, you know. 
Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Particularly with the old story that she was forced there after her failure, yeah. right? For which there's zero, absolutely, yeah, no evidence at all. Um, so, I mean, I think Anna and Nikki Forrest, they certainly disagreed on the nature of Alexius, right? Yeah, Nikki Forrest really thinks that Alexius would have made a lousy emperor, and you know, was 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 harsh, mm. and you know, it's a negative portrayal. And again, we talked about this in yeah. in our episode about Alexius that he yeah. wasn't a bad emperor at all, really. He was yeah. he seemed like a humble and and kind emperor. Oh, like I think he a fabulous emperor in terms of helping the Roman Empire not fall. Mm. You know, um, I he think he basically saved the Roman Empire. If you look at the state of the Roman Empire at the time before his absolutely his descendant, he you know it was terrible. But after his descendants, he was basically back to normal. No, it was it was fabulous. So, so to speak, <laughs> that case is made by Anna, um, mm. and I think it's it's strong. So I think she's she makes a very strong persuasive case for Alexis being a really good emperor. Um, yeah. And so in terms of her relationship with her husband, they had that disagreement, um, but there isn't any other evidence that they didn't like each other. And I think. Mm. Humans don't have to agree on all points about exactly. everything to get along. So sort of think about these not as sort of stock figures from a like a TV melodrama, but rather as actual humans. Yeah, uh, it's it's not hard to think that they had different views of mm. things, um, and still got along just fine. Um, you know, for an arranged marriage in an era which mm. you didn't have a whole lot of choice about who you spent yeah. your life. Um, I do think that the uh, her ongoing intellectual life is a sign that he had respect for her and cared about her. Mm. And, um, and both were interested in history, both wrote history. It was a match made in heaven, so to speak. Exactly, exactly. Um, and his but she does miss that Constantine to which she was supposed to marry in the first place. Though. She does write about him in the next year as well. She writes about him. I think that's something that um, she had fond memories, especially of her mother-in-law there. Yeah, Nazi. I mean, yeah, I think it's, um, I think it's rhetorically necessary for her to seem like a good person to have that moment of lamentation. Yeah. Right. So I don't know how much we need to take that as sincere, mm. right? Everything yeah. in the Lexiad is rhetorically thoughtful. So she doesn't yeah. have any emotional <sighs> outburst because she just mm. can't help it. And like we talked about before, we have to remember the time period that she writes this in. That is it's a totally different era than today's era yeah, that we... Exactly. So, you know, and everything she puts down there, she puts for a reason, mm. right? So it could absolutely be that she had some memory of that guy from when she yeah. was, like, three. Um, <laughs> I think she's too young to have any actual memories. Yeah. So that it's a performative, I am going to act like a woman who properly mourned this person that she was related to. I mean, yeah. supposed to be betrothed he to. He died when he was like seven, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, I think that the, that's a, a stance that helps construct her persona as a good woman and therefore yeah. a Bible historian. Um, and so I don't think that, you know, that's not real heart-wrenching morning um though she probably has some good memories mm. of her her former soon-to-be mother-in-law yeah you know, i'm not going to discount the whole thing um, i mean yeah we're going to wrap it up soon but of course i want to end with some questions here like can a nikki forest account and you touch upon this in your book as well be 
kind of be counted as a prequel to that. I'll let you say that. You don't agree with that, I think, if I remember, but can it be? Um, I think she, she might have thought at the beginning that she was going to complete his history, but she actually rewrote all the stories that he tells, right? So it's kind of, it's a different telling of her first book, right? Of her first opening yeah. couple of chapters. Um, it's just a different take on it. And it's, a, I would see more as just a dialogue and a very refined conversation that's about history, it's about politics and it's about our family, yeah. right? How we should remember them. And I think both were designed to be talked about Right, so mm. you'd read it after dinner. Everyone would listen to it, and then you have a conversation. Uh, yeah. So that's why they're both open to so many different interpretations. Mm. Is that it's designed to be a starting point for conversation about how yeah. we should think about our family and our politics and our memories. And you translated the Nitiforce Heroes and Romans yourself, and it's finally available in English form. So should you read that one before getting? If you haven't read the Alexia already, should you read that one before the Alexia? Yeah, my translation isn't, isn't going to be published. I'm not a great oh, translator, okay. so, so I have it. But um, there are, I think there are two that are uh, have been completed and are in production. So soon, soon we will have an English translation mm. out. Yeah. Um, I think absolutely I would read, I think they should be read together together. Mm. Um, because they're very much, it's in a dialogue. So if you only read the Alexiad, you're getting half of the story. And there are places where it's pretty clear that she's crafting her presentation in response to the yeah. image that her husband wrote. Um, mm. So it, it, we get a distorted image of the Alexiad if we don't. So you say it's kind of a prequel, more or less? Yeah, it, conversation partner. Yeah. You know, um, more like, I would say the Alexia is, is a remake, right? Mm, yeah. <laughs> So thank you so much for coming on the podcast and uh, now you have to go soon. So do, before you go, do you have anything you want to promote any social media where people can find you? If uh, anything you um, want me to put in the description and of course where people can find your books should they want to read them? Which you yeah. absolutely should. I think um, you can always just Google Leonora Neville and you'll find what I've been doing lately. Um, I think it's, it's yes. a fabulously fun uh, topic. So I would ask you to just read anything on Byzantine history. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Right. And Heroes and Romans is a, I appreciate people read that. It's a fun book. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Thank this you. has been Redat H12. We are available on social media on Instagram and the Redat H12. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you can find podcasts these days. Yeah, if you are on Apple Podcasts, consider writing a little review of us on on there that would help us out a lot and now a lot of my listeners are listening on the podcast so please consider taking three seconds to write it it would help me tremendous i'd love to hear your feedback and if you have any requests for historians and you want me to have on this podcast put it down and i'm happy to hear suggestions and topics please like share and subscribe and i'll see you next time